Hi Spain fans, it's Paul here with another episode of the Wedding to Spain podcast. Thanks for listening. Today I'm taking you out and about around Madrid by bike. Come and join me for a bike ride around Madrid. Now it's the first time I've done this. I'm going to use Madrid's Bifi Madrid scheme, which are these uh, bikes which you uh, find in different stations around the city and you uh, top up your transport card and you release the bike. So it's a scheme they have in lots of cities around the world now, I know. Um, it's pretty common in Madrid. Um, so I'm at uh, a little bike station uh, not far from Tierso de Molina Square and there are a few bikes in the rack. So I'm going to hop on the bike. I'm going to take us around Madrid and uh, I'm going to stop off along the way a few little intriguing secrets of Madrid, which I'm going to reveal to you all <laughs> in this episode. So during the last few months, all of the episodes have been uh, interviews with guests via Skype, transporting us around different parts of Spain. Now, I know you guys really enjoy, you know, hearing the sounds of the city. You enjoy me taking you out and about and uh, describing the atmosphere, things that are going on and uh, all the things that you can see and all of the typical <laughs> sounds of Spain going on behind us. So that's what I thought I would do today to make a bit of a change. I have got uh, interview episodes lined up for the next uh, couple of weeks, but I thought today it's a kind of going to be a bit of a meandering episode. Um, so I'm just going to take you out and about with me around Madrid. Got a few stops that I definitely want to hit and talk about, which have got some intriguing stories behind them that I haven't talked about before. So we're going to do that, and uh, I'm going to attempt to uh, not get knocked off my bike cycling around Madrid. Today is Tuesday, the 9th of June. It's a beautiful, warm, early summer's day, and um, well. We moved into phase two yesterday on Monday the 8th of June. Madrid and Barcelona moved into phase two of the de-escalation. And uh, what does that mean? Well, it means now that we're allowed to go out uh, any time of day. We're not restricted to these fixed hours that we had before of the morning and the evening. And the other key thing that's happened in phase two, which is really heartwarming, frankly, to see, is that... Um, Restaurants and bars that serve food are, have opened their interiors up now. So before, up until now, they could only have their terrazas, those which had tables and chairs outside. Now, with a capacity of, I think, 40% of their normal capacity, uh, they're allowed to open up their interior so people can actually sit inside restaurants and, you know, these typical bars which also serve food as well, which is great news. And, you know, um, just before I set off on the bike, I'd just like to say really for the first time, Madrid feels like it's awoken from its kind of coma, I would say. Maybe not a very nice analogy, but it does has really felt until now that Madrid just hasn't been itself. Physically, it's been present, but it's lacked all of the personality and the vibrancy, which for me, and I know for many people, and certainly those of you who know Madrid and have been here, Madrid is a city, really, that you know we enjoy because of its, its atmosphere, its ambiente, its marcha, as we call it, uh, the, the vibrant uh, atmosphere in all the different neighbourhoods. And, uh, you know, it's not really a city of grand monuments as such, like your Rome's or your Paris's or your Athens, but this is what makes Madrid so special. And it's so good to see that Madrid has uh, awoken from this kind of quite depressing slumber, I suppose, that we've had for the last few months. So, I'm going to attempt to uh, unlock one of these bikes 
and hopefully <laughs> hopefully it works they're like black and white bikes slotted into like electronic racks and what you do is you slide your little abono which is your like transport card into the slot and uh, it should work so let's give it a go okay so there you go you heard a bit of beeping going on there that was the bike being released from the rack the interesting thing about these bikes is they have uh, a little motor built into them um, to assist you uh, going up in hills so <laughs> I'm intrigued to see how this works Karine has been using them uh, to go to and from work because she doesn't want to use the metro hasn't had any problems so far um, but it's a really great scheme they're all available at different stations all around the center of the city within within really the m30 ring road that circles madrid there are stations all around there's a neat little app that you download which tells you where the nearest station is to where you are it tells you how many bikes are there and it charges you about 40 cents per half hour what you do is you top up your transport card which is a little red plastic transport card that you get and you have to pay a subscription you have to pay a, a yearly subscription and then once you've done that that gives you access to the service and then once you've done that you can uh, keep topping up your cards as you go and you can do that at the bike stations themselves which have a little machine or you can do it online just before I set off, the other thing which I think is a bit of a shame, they've got this great bike scheme, is that in Madrid there is not really very good provision for cyclists in terms of cycle lanes. So I'm going to be intrigued to see whether I have to kind of battle with any traffic along the roads. The other thing is, I said, I think uh, last time I spoke to you guys, um, particularly the patrons in my videos that I've been making, is how quiet Madrid has been in terms of traffic recently. That has started to change now. As you can probably hear, there are buses and bikes and cars going past. I'm planning to cycle us up the Castellana into Malasana. I'm going to do a loop round uh, through Chamberí. So we're going to head up to the north of the city and then back round to the centre, ticking off the little spots that I want to show you along the way. So I'm going to try, I'm quite short, that's my problem, so I might have to lower this saddle a bit. <laughs> Hopefully it will work. Um, right, let's get on. Oy. Okay, it's quite comfortable. Do you know, I haven't ridden a bike for, for quite a long time, and <laughs> the other thing I've just realised, there are a lot of one-way systems in Madrid. It's a question of kind of working out which street you can go up and which street you can go down. So, I'm going to head down to Tieso de Molina. There's a little truck going by carrying all of the orange gas canisters that people use to heat their water and heat their home. I mentioned it in a repost of an old episode I did last year about curiosities of Spanish houses. And I talked about these trucks that deliver these bombonas, these gas canisters. Anyway, right, I'm wheeling, I'm going, I'm moving. <laughs> Don't know how I feel about this because these bikes aren't too bad, they're a bit heavy. And they're a bit clunky and uh, right now i'm stuck in a line of traffic so i'm just heading downhill into tierso de molina square which is where they have a flower market and i can see all of the flower stands are open now all of the terrazas are open there are lots of people around lots of people out on the tables and chairs outside and it's about quarter to one in the afternoon and, and it's really bustling like i was just saying it's so nice to see Madrid bustling again. I think I might have said this before, but there was a point really when I didn't, <laughs> sounds weird to say, I know, but I didn't want to go out because Madrid just wasn't the Madrid that I, that I knew, if that makes sense. And it was just depressing to see the, the city just all shut up and lifeless. And um, so it's great, there's lots going on now. There were deliveries being made. There were uh, renovation works going on on buildings around me. 
Okay, so I just zipped down Kaya Tocha, which is quite a steep hill actually, there's me saying, which is not that <laughs> hilly. Um, just in Plaza Juan Goesolo, which is right next to the Reina Sofia Museum. The other thing that uh, I should mention is a lot of the museums in Madrid have uh, reopened or are reopening this week, which is fantastic. One thing of uh, being holed up inside for such a long time is it made me realise not to take things uh, for granted that are on your doorstep, particularly Madrid's fantastic museums um, as well. So I'm just in the square opposite Reino Sofia. Probably here <laughs> I'm cycling over cobbles. Which is all good fun. You'll probably hear it in my voice. <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous about this cycling around a big city like Madrid. I come from Oxford, which is a cycling city. Anyone knows of Oxford, which is the famous university city in the UK. Everyone knows. Oh, nearly run over a pigeon. The bike is the favoured mode of transport in Oxford. And uh, it's a really easy city to cycle around. There's not much traffic. You're probably more likely to get hit by a, a bike in Oxford than a car. Madrid is a different story. Anyway, my first stop I want to talk about, and just uh, come out right opposite Atocha Station. Looking resplendent in this summer sunshine today. For anyone who knows Atocha, you may know of the bar called El Brillante, famous for its blue and red neon sign. They've got their tables and chairs out this afternoon. Almost full, or there are a couple of uh, free uh, tables. The thing that is a bit uh, problematic at the moment with, with the terrazas and the tables and chairs outside uh, bars and restaurants is that because the capacity is reduced and also because everyone's been stuck inside for so long, you basically have to queue or make a reservation to get a spot on a terraza. So that's changed. I went out the weekend with some friends and we found terraza, but we kind of had to head a little bit out of the centre. We had to go pretty early on a Friday evening to, to get a table for the six of us that we were. We didn't have to reserve. So some, some places have a system where you have to reserve and you show up or you phone them up and you make a reservation. And I've heard that people are now doing this like a week in advance, um, which is just kind of crazy. There's something you never would have expected to happen before. And the other thing is, it's kind of potluck. You can show up and uh, see how many people are waiting, but uh, obviously you've got to get there early for that. During the daytime, like now, it is, uh, like I said, uh, just gone one, one o'clock in the afternoon. Quite a lot of people on these terrazas here at El Brillante, which is a good place for a classic place in Madrid to go for your bocadillo de calamares. Terraza here is pretty busy. There's another one just uh, down <laughs> outside Dunkin' Donuts. That is less busy, not surprisingly. But yeah, there are a few tables free. I've noticed that if you want to enjoy one of the simple pleasures of sitting outside and having a coffee or a beer or uh, some tapas or whatever, it's better to go in the early lunchtime. What did I want to talk about? Uh, my first stop. Okay, so where am I? Well, I'm right opposite Atocha Station. Um, as you can probably tell by the, the volume and the noise of the traffic, uh, this is one of the main thoroughfares right past Atocha. Um, but I don't know if anyone's ever noticed this before who's come out of Atocha Station. If you come out of Atocha Station, this huge imposing building opposite which is the Ministerio de Agricultura, Ministry of Agriculture, of course. And on top of the Ministry of Agriculture building, you're going to see these ginormous 
quite spooky looking statues. So the building was actually designed by an architect called Ricardo Velázquez Bosco. Well, he was a Freemason and there are lots of Masonic references on this building. On either side of the front entrance, you've got two gigantic Caryatids, which are these uh, sculpted female figures which are serving as an architectural support. Now, now they represent commerce and industry. Commerce statues carrying a mallet, which is a, uh, an emblem of the master mason, and it also has a square, which is a symbol of Masonic rectitude. The industry statue bears a cogwheel, the symbol of progress, and there are sheaves of wheat as well, which are symbols of abundance. But the most striking thing are these uh, statues right on the top crowning the building and apparently these three statues are called La Gloria y los Pegasos, the Glory and the Pegasus and they are three Pegasus horses, apparently an allegory of universal progress which was commissioned by a Catalan sculptor, Augusti Subirat, who was a high-ranking Freemason himself. I can just see from where I'm standing you can, you can make out little palm fronds which the statues are holding aloft into the air. So you can see the glory offering palms and laurels to art and science. And at the side, there are two groups of Pegasus, two, two groups of winged horses. Looks like they're cast in bronze. They've got a really black, imposing, kind of spooky color to them. And they're guided by the spirits of agriculture and industry. Now, apparently these three figures in the central group are allusions to the Grand National Lodge of Spain, which in uh, Spanish Masonic circles is the only body in possession of the three pillars of Freemasonry. Wisdom, strength and beauty, all embodied by three moral sources of light. The Book of Law, the Bible, Quran, Veda, etc. according to the uh, right in the country. And also on the front of the building we've got columns. We've got three different types of columns. You've got Doric, Ionic and Corinthian. And also in Masonic symbolism, these three types of uh, temple columns symbolize not only the three persons of the Trinity by the luminous delta and the triangle and the eye of providence, but also the three highest officers in a Masonic lodge. So Doric is the father or the worshipful master. Ionic is the mother or the senior warden. And the Corinthian column represents the son or the junior warden. So there you go. Uh, next time you come to Madrid and you step out of the Atocha station and you look across the square and you see the Ministry of Agriculture, cast your eyes up. Check out these huge Pegasus horses on the roof and the columns. So I'm just walking my bike along the Paseo del Prado. I'm just walking along the railings next to the Botanic Gardens, the Royal Botanical Gardens, which looks like it's open because as I look through the railings, I can see a few people milling around inside. Um, and I've never been. Uh, listeners, hopefully, in the not too distant future, I will take us into the Botanical Gardens of the patrons. I'll make a little video. You can probably hear the water sprinklers are on full throttle now that the heat's kicked in. And I can see a few gardeners in there also tending to the plants. Patrons, you may remember in my video that I did of the walk around the Retiro Park, which I'm not far from now, um, just how dishevelled it was all looking. Um, so I reckon that now we're in phase two, the gardeners will be out in force, trying to get it looking shipshape for the summer. Over on my left, I'm just looking across to the Caixa Forum, which is uh, exhibition art gallery. 
Many of you may know it for its famous vertical garden, which I'm just looking across at now. Yeah, quite impressive vertical garden. It has growing up uh, a wall on its uh, courtyard just outside the front. Oh, this is curious. <laughs> so I look through into the botanical gardens. There is a film crew and a lady dressed in a very elaborate frock with black feathers in her hair. It's not something I expected to see. They're obviously filming some kind of period drama. She's wearing like a sort of very elaborate, sort of Victorian style, long beige and black dress. All her hair elaborately tied up and she's got these big black feathers in her head. There's a film crew just inside the gate as I walked past, sort of staring at me as if to say, keep moving. One thing I didn't mention about the Madrid Bifi scheme, which I guess is kind of obvious, but you know, you pick up your bike from one of the stations and you don't have to return it to the same station, obviously. You can drop your bike off wherever you want. Um, and this has been quite an eye-opener for me. It just makes uh, getting around much quicker than walking. Um, recently, I uh, haven't taken the metro because I've been working remotely. And incidentally, guys, sorry for the delay in episode. Uh, sorry I didn't bring you an episode last week. Uh, in the academy where I work, where I've been teaching online for the last few months, we're in exam season. So all of my poor students have uh, been inflicting exams on them. And for the last week, I've had dozens and dozens of exams to administer and correct, which is a very time-consuming task. So uh, that's why there's been a bit of a delay in bringing you a new one in Spain episode, guys. So apologies for that. But as I said, I haven't wanted to catch the Metro, but I did catch the Metro for the first time uh, last weekend. Um, went to see went to visit and have lunch with Karina's parents and her brother and sister, which is great because we hadn't seen them for months. Although it was almost like we no time had passed when we did meet up with them. But they live up in the uh, north of the city in a neighborhood called Ciudad Lineal. And uh, we caught the metro up there because it's a long way to go cycling or walking. And that was the first time I'd been on the metro. I worked out for, I don't know, over three months, which is kind of strange for me because I Ever since I've lived in Madrid, I've always caught the metro wherever I've gone to work, to zip across the city. Um, but it was pretty empty. They've put sort of stickers on alternate seats on the metro saying, do not sit here, which people were respecting. Um, a few people were putting their shopping bags on the seat. Just stood by a fountain. There were two twin fountains on the Paseo del Prado. And I'm just stood across from the Prado Museum which is open. The doors are open. The last time I came past here, it was closed. Uh, the Prada opened, I believe, this last weekend just gone, or may have even been yesterday. And they're offering free entry for, uh, I think, this week for the first few days. You have to sign up on the internet and you can get free entry. And I haven't been for many years. Again, it's what happens when you have these things on your doorstep, you take them for granted and you don't go. So I'm gonna see if I can try and get some free entry tickets uh, with Karina and hopefully we can do a little episode or a little bonus video for you guys of fantastic patrons. I'm now on uh, Paseo de Recoletos. Uh, Recoletos is like a continuation of the Paseo del Prado. Uh, it's a big wide boulevard with a nice kind of shady wide pavements on each side. 
Where I am now, the traffic's just started roaring again. Uh, it's a very busy road. Just across from me, I'm looking at the uh, Spanish National Library. The access to general public is pretty tricky. You, what you have to do is, what I did last year is become a member and you have to go in and go through this sort of protocol and sign up and have your photo taken and they give you an ID card to be able to access the main reading rooms of the, of the National Library. However, it does have a little museum uh, underneath it, which you can uh, go and visit for free. Looks at the uh, history of Spanish literature, a little bit of history behind the library, publishing and uh, printing in Spain, that kind of thing. It's quite a grand building, it's got the Spanish flag waving away in the wind, uh, big grand steps behind the railings going up to the main entrance with the columns. Uh, it's kind of like a cream coloured building. But inside the main reading rooms, it's really beautiful stained glass, coloured glass ceilings and like frescoes painted around the main reading room representing each uh, province, I think it is, or each region. I think it's each province, and there are 50 of them, these 50 frescoes representing each province of Spain. Just where I am actually stopped on my bike now though, on this side of the Recoletos, is the Mapfre Foundation. The Mapfre Foundation is a, a museum and it's got uh, some examples of uh, Miro and a few other 19th and 20th century artists, but they have really good rotating exhibitions at the Mapfre Museum. Mapfre is a big insurance company, so I don't know when it happened, but uh, they obviously sponsor or funded uh, the museum. Just uh, ahead of me is the Torre de Colón. Some people love it, some people hate it. It's one of those towers or buildings which divides opinions. If you've been to Madrid, you'll know it. It's the kind of glazed brown tower, which on the top has a strange kind of pale greeny blue Brown. It's a strange looking building. Um, that's on the Plaza de Colón. What I'm going to do is continue up Recoletos to the Castellana, which is well, probably Madrid's main boulevard, which runs from where I am now by the National Library and Plaza de Colón, Columbus Square. And the Castellana basically takes you all the way up north through Madrid, right up to the business district where the Cuatro Torres are the four towers, the four modern skyscrapers which were opened only a few years ago. As I cycle up the Recoletos, on my left really is the Chueca neighbourhood and to the right is the Salamanca neighbourhood, Madrid's most expensive and exclusive barrio of posh boutiques, beautiful tree-lined streets, expensive restaurants another world from the Madrid that I know down in the La Latina neighbourhood and Lava Pies and down there. I rarely get up to the Salamanca part of the city but you really do notice a difference. You kind of cross an invisible wall and uh, everyone is immaculately dressed. You get to see lots of like well-dressed businessmen. You get to see these sort of elderly ladies with perfectly manicured hair and their poodles and all of their expensive jewellery and pearls. Speaking of a Salamanca neighbourhood, just taking you up to a street which has got an interesting story behind it. All will be revealed in a minute. You know, I was saying about uh, Salamanca being the posh neighbourhood. From where I'm stopped on my bike now, what can I see? Expensive shops. What have we got? Right in front of me, Jimmy Choo. Next to Jimmy Choo, Bulgari. Next to Bulgari, Rolex. Behind me, Tiffany and Co. 
and uh, a lot of other expensive shops, expensive looking boutiques as well, Chalmet. I've got Christian Dior just further down the street from me. And what street am I on? Well, it's called Calle de Jose Ortega y Gasset. If you ever come to Madrid and you want to indulge your uh, high-end shopping uh, fantasies, uh, this neighbourhood is definitely for you. But it just goes to show, as I was saying, this is really the kind of other Madrid that I don't really get to see very often. Anyway, let's head to the street where I want to take you, which is called Calle Claudio Coelho. Okay, so I am still on Calle Claudio Coelho. I'm at uh, number 104. Why am I here? Well, at 104, um, and there's a plaque commemorating this, on the 20th of December 1973, uh, Admiral Luis Carrero Blanco, who was Prime Minister, and he was the Prime Minister who was uh, supposed to be the successor of an aging Franco in 1973, was the scene of his assassination. So this is where the Prime Minister Admiral Luis Carrero Blanco was assassinated. He was returning from mass driving along this street when his car was blown up and as I look up at uh, 104, the very top of the uh, building, uh, you can still see part of the cornice of the building is broken and there are sort of fractures in some of the columns at the top of the five-story building it is. And the force of the explosion was so powerful that it actually blew his car right over the five-story building into the interior of the building. It actually catapulted it over five stories. And it was the separatist terrorist group ETA who claimed responsibility for the explosion and the group of ETA members what they did is they had been staying in a in 104 on this street or on, in an adjacent building and they had over a period of time tunneled under the street and placed 100 kilos of explosives which they detonated at just the exact moment when uh, the Prime Minister's car was passing along the street and then catapulted it flying over five stories looking at the building it's quite incredible to imagine a car flying that far and it landed in the internal courtyard apparently the ETA members had been renting this basement and one of the ETA members claimed he was a sculptor hence the noise of lots of drilling obviously they were using to uh, excavate the tunnel uh, where the bomb would be placed and the operation by ETA was known as Operacion Ogro, Operation Ogre. Um, that was a code name they used during the planning of uh, the assassination. Um, and where we are, it's not too far from the United States uh, Embassy. And initially it was thought that the CIA uh, may have been involved. But as I said, later on, uh, ETA claimed responsibility for the attack. So I've just crossed back over the Castellana, quite a handsome street, very beautiful townhouses called Calle del Marques de Riscal. And why have I brought you here? Well, this is very interesting for me. Um, I'm stood outside number seven, Calle de Marques de Riscal. And number seven, why? Because behind the facade, and although you wouldn't know it, it's uh, uh, a kind of cream and white coloured facade with arched uh, doorways, which are kind of blocked off at the top. It's got about five or six square windows with stone pillared balconies, little round windows and ornate 
plinth and it looks like it's got a little rooftop garden as well the whole street is uh, lined with trees it's a lovely beautiful shaded street we're not in Salamanca anymore we've crossed over the Castellano as I said and we're in the district called Almagro behind this frontage is a pelota court otherwise known as Betty Jai um, and this is the game where you have one long wall and players hit a ball using either their hands or a long curled wicker glove and they fire the ball against the wall. Now this is popular up in the Basque region of uh, Spain and indeed in the south of France, in the Basque region of France where village squares have a fronton, a fronton, fronton, which is like a facade which is used for hitting the ball against. But amazing to think that right here in the centre of Madrid they have their very own Betty High Court. Now the court here at number seven Marques de Riscal had been basically abandoned and had fallen into massive disrepair for decades and decades and decades. And I think it was only in 2018 that they completed the refurbishment or the renovation of the Pelota Court or the Betty High Court, if you like. Um, I think American listeners may be familiar with this uh, for those listeners in Florida because for some reason this sport was pretty big down in Florida and in Miami if I'm not mistaken but this is the same thing anyway it had fallen in dis into disrepair for many many uh, decades and uh, well it's the last industrial political in the world uh, basically designed in the 19th century and uh, that was no longer erected next to large church walls or in village squares like I mentioned and the Betty High Court uh, here in Madrid. It's also the last pelota court in Madrid and the only example of a 19th century sporting facility uh, in the whole of the city. Inside, which unfortunately I can't take you in to, to see, and I've never been inside. I've only seen photos uh, before when it was in a massive state of ruin and disrepair and since uh, the, the renovated version that I've seen. Um, there's some debate as to what they're going to do with the space. At the moment they open it up on special days uh, throughout the year, but it's not open on a daily basis at the moment. And I think the local government are deciding how to make best use of the space. They're not going to use it as a Betty High Court anymore but they're thinking of it as a you know an arts venue it would make a great concert venue and this was one of the uh, initiatives which was uh, overseen by Mayor Carmena over the last few years they spent a lot of money bringing it back to life I think several millions maybe tens of millions even of euros were spent on, on renovation uh, to return it to its original uh, glory and um, it was actually constructed in 1893 at the bequest of a businessman called Jose Arana who wanted to apparently create a court in the image of Betty High of San Sebastian and San Sebastian of course being the city up in the Basque country in the north of Spain but he wanted to make it bigger and, and he wanted to make it one of the most modern of its time so the site was designed by architect Joaquin Rucoba, who was also responsible for the Ariaga Theatre and the Town Hall in Bilbao. And it was, yeah, inaugurated on the 29th of April in 1894 and it included lounges, a main hall, ticket booths, a cafeteria, uh, infirmary, rooms for the athletes, and it soon became a meeting place for Madrid's middle class. Um, but the courts closed their doors as long ago as 1919. And uh, this is quite interesting. Its subsequent uses, um, the site was converted into a police station, a garage, and it was even used as a rehearsal hall for phalangist bands. 
Um, nowadays, the court, which is, um, according to my research that I did on the Madrid City Hall website, it's 68 metres long. And it was uh, designed in the Neo-Mudeja style. So inside, although we can't really tell from the outside facade, inside it's got this very ornate uh, keyhole archways. It's got very ornate wrought iron balconies. It looks a little bit like maybe the inside of a bullring, but it's semi-circular. 68 meters long and 4,000 square meters as the area that it covers. Yeah, it's a shame that we can't go in and see it, but I would love to one day uh, get in there. From where I'm standing now, literally just opposite the building, um, it's completely unassuming. There is nothing to suggest that behind this facade lies a 4,000 square meter and 68 uh, meter long Betty High Court right here in the center of Madrid. Um, an amazing story. I'm glad they renovated it. Um, let's hope they put it to good use. And let's hope at some point we can get inside because standing outside now you would have no idea that this was inside and i'm imagining that the court inside which is open air it's completely open air inside um it must stretch i imagine to the next block from the street where i'm standing i will put some photos of this there's um, actually a video as well i found online when i was doing a bit of research for this episode which uh, has little interviews with the architects and it gives you like a little video tour inside and it compares the kind of before and after and it was in a really really bad way it was completely overgrown had trees growing in the middle of it um, at some stage the beautiful ornate wrought iron balconies which are on sort of five tiers which is obviously where the spectators would have sat was sadly sort of concreted in they built these horrible ugly concrete walls in between the balconies with little windows and incidentally the name Betty High is the Basque name for the sport in case you were wondering what it actually means it's Basque for siempre fiesta in Spanish which would be like party all the time party all the time okay guys last stop on my little bike tour um, headed back down into the Malasagna neighborhood and I'm standing right now on Calle del Pez. Calle del Pez is one of the sort of main streets in the center of the Malasagna neighborhood which is the kind of lively uh, district, so quite youthful, vibrant, loads of bars, loads of restaurants. It was the kind of epicenter of the uh, La Morbida movement. It's always been seen as the kind of epicenter of the rebellious counterculture in the 80s. It was really where Madrid's cultural rebirth took place, so it was a, a center of uh, explosion of music, literature, uh, all kinds of uh, arts as a kind of reaction to 40 years of the uh, Franco regime. Anyway, the reason I'm on Calle del Pez, which uh, is Fish Street, which instantly has loads of cool bars on it. I'm just walking past one now called El Pez Gordo, which means the fat fish, but uh, could also be translated as, as um, the big shot, if you want to call someone <laughs> who thinks they're all that in Spanish. You know, He thinks he's a bit of a pez gordo, thinks he's a bit of a, a big shot. Um, and also just further down the street that I can see now is... Um, very well-known bar called Palentino. Palentino uh, used to be, up until about two years ago, a really kind of spit and sawdust dive bar, uh, much cherished by madrileños and indeed by me too. Um, cheap and cheerful, lively bar to go to at the weekend, run by an old guy called Casto, who sadly passed away about two years ago, and he was well into his 80s, and he was still working in 
Palentino's behind the bar. Every night you'd go in, you'd see him. Um, he'd be preparing the drinks, making the sandwiches. And uh, yeah, quite a boisterous atmosphere. Sadly, he passed away. His family didn't want to continue with the business and it got bought up. And well, heavily gentrified, there are a few nods to its previous life, I guess, in the interior, but it was pretty much gutted and turned into a more modern, uh, a more modern bar, I guess. I've not been back since. I think a lot of people have decided they don't want to go back. Um, but it's a very, very um, mythical, legendary spot in Malasagna. As you can hear, renovations going on. It seems to me as now we're in phase two. Um, everyone is back with a vengeance in uh, getting on with renovation works, building projects all over the city. I've noticed as I've been cycling around, um, there's lots of work going on uh, on all sorts of buildings around the city. The reason I wanted to talk about Calle del Pez, Fish Street, is because it's got a really curious little legend, little story behind it. How true it is, well, who knows. Um, but along Calle del Pez, there are lots of little references to fish in the names of the bars. There are little engravings uh, on the walls. And particularly um, at the corner of Calle del Pez and Calle de Jesús de Valle, um, there is uh, quite a, an attractive little uh, engraving, I guess. It's kind of like a beige yellow engraving. It's got a picture of a fish and it says above the fish, Casa del Pez, House of the Fish. The story behind it is really interesting, which is why I wanted to share it with you. Um, the little fish that's carved on the building on the corner of those two streets, um, it dates back to the 17th century, when at the time, uh, the section between Pothas and San Bernardo streets was called Calle de la Fuente del Cura, the priest's fountain, apparently. And, uh, well, a guy called Diego Enriquez who was a priest, lived on what used to be a beautiful, a beautiful estate right at this spot. Hard to imagine now because Malasagna is a maze of little narrow streets, but uh, there used to be uh, a beautiful estate right here. And Enriquez's uh, property included five ponds, including a fountain and a small pool filled with fish, apparently of all different colours, which he showed to neighbours and churchgoers every year, apparently on the 24th of June, which is the Feast of St. John. Now, when uh, he died, Philip II, who had already moved his court to Madrid by then, acquired the estate and he divided it up um, to build more housing, which makes sense if you look at it today. It's all three, four, five-storey uh, apartment blocks. And anyway, eventually a guy called Juan Coronel bought the section of the estate which included the pool and the fish, which eventually became pets for his daughter, Blanca. Now, unfortunately, after all of the restoration and the building work, the fish started dying one by one. Poor Blanca managed to save the last survivor and apparently she placed it in an aquarium. But despite all of her hard work to keep the little fish alive, it did not survive. So to console his daughter, Juan Coronel had a fish carved in stone by the door of the house uh, next to it. And he hung a sign there saying Casa del Pez, House of the Fish, as I said. Many years later, and this is the <laughs> curious part of the story, Blanca uh, decided to become a nun. She took the veil at the neighbouring San Placido convent. And what happened? Not good. The convent quickly fell into disgrace. Apparently 26 of the 30 nuns who lived there were allegedly possessed by the devil. And over time, the coronel's house was destroyed. But the little fish 
uh, carving that you can still say, see today uh, was kept and it was placed on a new building which you can find today at the corner of Calle del Pez and Calle de Jesus del Valle. So there you go. So there you go, guys. I'm back home now. I uh, dropped off my bike at the, one of the stations in Malasania, had a coffee. And uh, and you know what? It wasn't as uh, scary as I thought it was going to be cycling around the busy streets of Madrid. A little bit dicey at times uh, on some of the major roads, uh, weaving in and out of the traffic. But uh, I'm addicted. I'm going to be out and about on the, mid- on the Madrid Bithi scheme as much as possible from now on. One thing that I meant to mention as I was cycling up the Castellano, which is that big wide boulevard that goes from basically the Cibeles Palace or the end of the Paseo del Prado all the way up to the business district, the Cuatro Torres uh, skyscrapers and past um, Nuevos Ministerios. Um, there's an interesting story and an expression which is born out of that part of the city. And I'm sure some of you may have heard it, but if any of you are learning Spanish or wanting to enrich your vocabulary and drop in some colloquial expressions, um, this is a really good one. And the expression is estar en el quinto pino, estar en el quinto pino, um, which means to be at the fifth pine tree. And in Spanish, it's used to mean miles away, uh, out in the sticks. So someone might say in Spanish, jo, no voy andando, la casa está en el quinto pino, um, which is like, I'm not walking, the house is in the middle of nowhere. And the origin of the expression is uh, is quite interesting. They say that during uh, Felipe V's reign, five big pine trees were planted uh, alongside el Paseo del Prado, all the way up to Nuevos Ministerios, along the Castellana. There were five big pine trees and they were really spaced out. There were quite a long distance between each tree. Can't tell you exactly how much distance between each pine tree um, but there were five pine trees and one was planted between the Paseo del Prado and the Recoleto so basically in the center of the city and over time people used to use those pine trees as landmarks as basically as meeting points and for most people it was typical to meet at the first pine tree because they were in the city center as I said however the fifth pine tree which was the one furthest away from the center of the city was used for couples who were dating or courting and uh, wanted to sneak off to the fifth pine tree, which was way out of the centre, basically so they had more privacy away from uh, prying eyes so they could steal a forbidden kiss under the quinto pino, under the fifth pine tree, which is, you know, out in the sticks, away from everybody so they had some privacy. And uh, that's where the expression came from and it stuck. So you hear it occasionally. I wouldn't say it's super, super common, but el quinto pino... Um, it's a nice expression uh, to drop into your conversation if you're talking about something that seems really too far away. And uh, it relates directly to that part of the city uh, along which I was cycling. So there you go. An interesting little uh, factet for you there. So that will do it for this week's episode. And um, before I go, and I normally do this at the beginning of the episode, but this uh, this episode's the format has been a little bit different. Um, but I wanted to say a big thank you to two new When in Spain patrons. So I'd like to say muchísimas gracias to Dawn Davis 
And I would like to say muchísimas gracias also to Raminta. Raminta, Raminta, I don't have your second name, but to Raminta and to Dawn Davis, thank you so much for signing up to become uh, the latest When in Spain patrons supporting uh, the podcast and the work that I do in putting it together. I really appreciate it. Thank you for doing that. Um, if anyone enjoys the podcast and would like to support me and the show to keep it going and growing into the future, you can do it super easily uh, by becoming a member at the patreon.com patreon.com which is a crowdfunding website and the specific address you need is patreon.com forward slash when in Spain you can sign up to make a monthly pledge from as little as just one dollar per month for anyone who pledges at the five dollar per month or above you will get access to when in Spain bonus content uh, like the videos that I've been uh, putting together recently so if you'd like to see video content um, from around Madrid and other bonus material go and sign up to become a patron I really appreciate it incidentally if anyone is wondering what is patron how does it work and have lots of questions about it why not head across to the new when in Spain website uh, where there is a page there explaining all about patron how it works um, why it's uh, useful why it's important Important, uh, for me, for you guys to support the show and all of any frequent questions that are asked, I've put it all on the When in Spain uh, website, which incidentally is whenInSpainPodcast.com. WhenInSpainPodcast.com. Um, I've only had it now for a few weeks, but uh, go and check it out. I'm populating the page with new content uh, as uh, each week goes by. Um, it's the place where I share new episodes with the show notes. So if you want more detailed show notes and you want to see photos and videos, which relate uh, to each podcast episode, do go and head across to the When in Spain website, whenInSpainPodcast.com. And also on there, you can sign up, uh, drop your email address and sign up to get updates. So each time I post a new article or some new content on the When in Spain website, you will be notified. Uh, the other thing for any new listeners who may not know is When in Spain has a Facebook page and group. Go and search When in Spain on Facebook and sign up to the group. About three and a half thousand members like-minded Spain lovers like us. It's a place for you to socialise with other members, uh, ask questions, post content relevant to Spain, that kind of thing. And do go and follow me on Instagram as well. There is a When in Spain Instagram account, When in Spain number one, When in Spain one on Instagram. I post uh, photos on there regularly, some of which relate to the podcast episodes, but I regularly post photos um, from around Madrid and Spain as well. And one last thing, just before I go, uh, please subscribe, uh, rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you use. Uh, if you can, give it a little five star uh, rating or a little mini review, a couple of sentences, uh, just sharing your thoughts um, about the podcast. It all helps uh, give the When in Spain podcast more visibility, pushes it up the charts, helps more people discover it, which would be great. Um, anything else to say? No, I will be back with another episode next week. Stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, have a great week. And thank you for listening. And hasta luego. Thank you.